Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about a horror story by Robert E. Howard called The Black Stone. This was originally published in 1932. This story was nominated by a Patreon supporter. Uh, it was, in fact, a nomination that we sold to this Patreon supporter. It was the first time we've done that. And in fact, this supporter is the one who had the idea for us to be doing that. And it is something that we are now doing quite a bit of. So thank you both for the sale and thank you for this brilliant idea. Uh, this is really actually shaping how we are going about uh, choosing what we are covering here on the show. And that's been really awesome. And if you're interested in doing that for yourself, if you'd like to purchase the ability to nominate a story to the ballots that uh, decide what we cover here, uh, you can get in touch with us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com is the email, or you can message us on Twitter, come to the forum, find us on Reddit. You, know, you can find us pretty much anywhere on social media. And I'm also just really excited about this story. I mean, this is like a great idea to do this story. It is absolutely one of my favorites, not just of Robert E. Howard's, but really of the whole Weird Tales brand of weird fiction. And I'm really excited to do this. Yeah, I am too. I, I I loved this story as well. I mean, I really, especially the first like two thirds of it, uh, as we'll see when I kind of walk us through it. It's it's so much fun. It's right up my alley in terms of the kind of story that I just love. And uh, the last bit, the horror works really well, but it's really the, the first act. I think, Glenn, you're more of a first act man than I am. But in this story, <laughs> I am a first act man. I like that first act man is like now a thing that a person can be. <laughs> and, 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 and I am it. That is for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's just do it. Let's get into it, Brandon. Uh, take us away. They say foul beings of old time still lurk in dark forgotten corners of the world. And gates still gape loose on certain nights. Shapes pent in hell. Well, this is what Justin Jeffrey, the mad poet, who occasionally shows up in Robert E. Howard's horror fiction, and who also uh, provides the epigram to this dark tale the Black Stone has written. He also shows up in the story a little bit. And so we get to learn a little bit about Justin Jeffrey and what he has to do with this Black Stone. Uh, but that, that's just, uh, kind of an aside. That's a different piece of the story. The main story opens with the narrator who is telling us, his audience, how he had come to hear about the Black Stone. He tells us he read about it in a book by Van Junst, the quote, German eccentric who lived so curiously and died in such a grisly and mysterious fashion. The narrator, we're told, has an original copy of the Van Junst book called Nameless Cults, and this is something that the narrator assures us is very hard to come by. A lot of uh, out-of-print books, a lot of moth-eaten and, and kind of rat-worn <laughs> books with foxing <laughs> in the opening of this story. Anyway, Van Junst, uh, Van Junst, we're told, lived a kind of crazy life investigating the strange and esoteric, especially as those things pertain to the formation and practices of dark, ancient cults, some of whom are still practicing their belief in the dark corners and shadows of Europe and elsewhere. But the contents of Nameless Cults is full of all sorts of crazy, unsettling stuff. And Van Yunz also left an unpublished manuscript behind. This was found by his close friend Alexis Landau, who slit his own throat 
after trying to read it. And Van Yunts were then told was found dead in his locked room in his locked door apartment, strangled by something with talon like fingers. Well, I absolutely love this opening. I mean, the first clause of the story after we get that bit of poetry that tells us exactly what the plot is going to be. But the first clause of this story is, I read of it first in the strange book of Von Junst. And then we do not learn what it is for a whole nother page because the narrator wants to tell us about the different editions of this book first. And well, I think just about any editor today would nix all of this, this type of opening is definitely my thing. I love the tease of, of the delay here, but I also really, really love all of this information about von Junst uh, himself, his, his life, the book that he wrote, and also its various editions and translations and like what the flaws are in them and why you would prefer <laughs> one to the other. I love that stuff. And, and the book here, Nameless Cults, right? This is Howard's variation on Lovecraft's Necronomicon, which has, you know, uh, uh, nom in there is sort of supposed to be name. Uh, what Necronomicon means is sort of a weird thing that we'll, we'll have to talk about at some point when we actually get that in a Lovecraft story uh, in a way that really matters, but we've, which we've not done yet. But the book Nameless Cults, it does show up in a lot of Howard's contemporary horror stories. So does, as you mentioned, Brandon, the poet Justin Jeffrey. So this here, the, really just on this first page, the epigram in the first paragraph, Howard is building up his own mythos for his stories here. And Von Junst sounds like a super fascinating character in his own right, along with his buddy Lido. And I, I don't think that Howard ever wrote anything with them as protagonists, but I wish that he had. Yeah, that would be so awesome. This Von Junst, as as we're saying, I, I've been saying Van Junst. I think there there's a typo in our edition, and I when I went back over my notes, I changed them all to Van. I think because it was the last one that was used, <laughs> uh, and I was just double checking. But yeah, it would be awesome to see this guy's investigations show up in uh, in a Robert E. Howard story, or maybe this is just a great writing prompt. I mean, taking a character like this and, and turning them into your own character is really a great idea. It's a great way to mine old pulp fiction for ideas, uh, which is also 30% of why we do this show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love this opening as well. This is exactly right up my alley, as I was saying. I almost don't care that we're supposed to be wanting to know about what the it is in this opening paragraph, because I'm so taken away by all of this stuff about the book editions, the life of Von Junst, his friend, the, the mad deaths. And then we get like more book stuff here, more book investigator stuff, which is, you know, and, and really underutilized genre, I think, in all forms of fiction. But <laughs> essentially, we're being treated to a narrative of a, of a book detective. You know, as we were saying, regardless of this whole opening about Von Junst, the point is really that our narrator came across a reference to the Black Stone in this book, Nameless Cults, and this idea of it really stuck with him. And what was disappointing to the narrator of this tale is that von Junst doesn't really have much to say about it. It's just an idea. It's just something he saw that uh, made he made reference to, and then he kind of moves on. But one thing von Junst does mention is that this Blackstone is a key, which we're not sure what that is yet. Uh, but what it is physically, instead of maybe metaphysically, is a monolith 
that produces some curious and strange sights on mid Midsummer's Night. Uh, for instance, one Otto Dostmann had a theory that the Black Stone was erected to co- commemorate a victory of Attila the Hun over the Goths. But this is a dismissible theory because it's just bad dating of the artifact, according to the narrator. It would be as if we attributed Stonehenge to William the Conqueror. But the fact that Dostmann is cited in von Junst's book means that Dostmann must have written something about the Blackstone as well. This is how you use bibliographies to like build out <laughs> your uh, build out your library and do research. So the narrator tracks down a copy of Dostmann's book, Remnants of Lost Empires. But disappointingly, again, Dostmann has very little to say about the Blackstone, too. But Dossman adds a little more information here. He references a town in Hungary called Strigoi Kavar, which roughly translates as witch town. I think for anybody who plays <laughs> the Witcher games or is familiar with the show knows knows what Strigoi means now. But uh, yeah, probably not in the 1930s. Uh, it wasn't as big a part of popular culture, I suppose. But anyway, our narrator has something else to look into. So he begins reading a bunch of tour guides and eventually uncovers more info about the stone and Midsummer Night uh, in Dornley's book, which is not a tour guide, but it's uh, a local uh, a book of local folklore called Magyar Folklore. This is undoubtedly an overlooked classic in the field. <laughs> anyway, this book mentions how bad an idea it is to visit the stone on Midsummer Night, and eventually all of this searching leads the narrator to discover Justin Jeffrey's poem, The People of the Monolith. And he further uncovers that Jeffrey wrote the poem after visiting a monolith while traveling in Hungary. And yes, I absolutely love this story so far. This is one of my favorite opening openings for a story I think we've read. Like I said, it's a book detective tracking information through citations and half-forgotten moth-eaten books. And I just want the whole story to stay like this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. And I, I didn't really think about it quite in those terms until you said so, Brandon. But this is the sort of thing that that when I'm, when I'm teaching and I encounter students who just don't really know how to read citations or how to use a bibliography to find, you know, to track down, to, to trace down the, the source of information or to just find more books to read on a certain topic. I'm always blown away that that's not something they already know by the time they get to university level of education. Also, I'm always blown away when students will tell me like they don't know what the word encumbrance means, for example. And my response to these is always just, well, you should be playing more D&D and you should be reading more weird tales <laughs> stories as well. <laughs> like that, like all of this is just sort of second nature to me, even you know, thinking about taking my, my first methods class as an undergrad and just finding it, frankly, rather dull because I already knew how to do all of this stuff, but it was because of Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft that I knew how to do all of that stuff already. Yeah, this is what they write about. I mean, this is, I don't know, probably a thousand or 1200 words of the story that's literally about uh, citations and used bookstores. So I mean, I love this, but uh, (laughs) you know, I, I think if you don't encounter this, uh, by a certain age, the the mystery and magic that can be found in forgotten books. Um, I don't know. Hopefully, you've in- encountered something like this before you attend college or or start a a career, um, because this is just 
this kind of thinking has brought so much joy to, to my life. I might just start giving copies of this story away at Halloween instead of candy. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> All right, so that's the end of the real opening of the story here. And the next section begins with the narrator kicking around some ideas about where to spend his summer vacation. And, well, it's not hard for him to decide that he's going to go to Hungary so that he can find a way to get to Strigoikovar. So he goes there, and it's a nice journey. And, you know, we get a little bit of a travelogue here, pretty short. He sees some old battlefields where there, and then tells us a little bit about the Turkish wars and some stuff about Suleiman the Magnificent and, and the battle where he defeated the heroic knight Count Boris Vladinov. And I'm going to narrate a little bit about this. The Count, during his feudal stand against the Turks, uh, futile was brought a small lacquered case which had been looted from the body of the Turkish scribe and historian and soldier Salim Bahadur. The count read some of what was written on the parchment in the box, uh, and then he put the case in his cloak and was defeated almost immediately after that. And the Count was buried, we're told, kind of near the battlefield or maybe in the rubble of his castle, which was destroyed during this attack by the invading Turks. And at this point, when I'm reading the story, I'm thinking, I'm okay, that's cool. I'm not sure why that's in here. It's like driving around Gettysburg looking for a bar and, uh, <laughs> and being sidetracked by all the battlefield history. Maybe it'll come into play later. Who knows? Anyway, we're also told that the Count's body is probably still there buried in the rubble because, I don't know, I guess university departments hadn't gotten to the Turkish wars yet in terms of uh, archaeology. Yeah, let me just make a few comments here about the historical episodes that Howard is invoking in this buildup here, really, to the main attraction that we are eventually going to get to after all of this bookish stuff. Because he he mentioned the idea that the monolith is a victory monument erected by Attila to commemorate his victory over the, the Goths, uh, which is in the, the first half of the fifth century. It's part of the narrative that we like to call the fall of the Roman Empire, which is what I have worked on as a scholar. But then we also here now have of the invasion of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Emperor, from 1520 until 1566. And I, I, I want to dwell on that bit for longer than is really probably justified by this story, I guess, simply because the Blackstone is our second story in a row that takes place in Hungary. Uh, and this stuff here, the, the Suleiman stuff, is probably also in the background of Metzengerstein. That's the, the Poe story that we did last time. The Ottoman Turks have controlled the Balkans since the 14th century. And then in the 1520s, Suleiman sought to expand his control of really maybe we'll say of the Balkans of Eastern Europe by conquering Belgrade. Uh, the Hungarian king died in 1526. And so Suleiman invaded. Uh, and that's actually the year that Howard has here as well. But then there were a series of wars during Suleiman's reign that led all the way to a siege of Vienna. Uh, and these, these wars were really all about conquering. Uh, Hungary and then also protecting Hungary from you know, counter conquest, I guess. And the, the next 150 years in this region are characterized by wars that are both small and large, uh, wars between the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Habsburg Empire headquartered in Vienna, uh, and various local powers, of course, as well. And it's one of these conflicts, actually, that I think was the subject of the tapestry in Metzengerstein. But also, <laughs> this is the backstory of Dracula, uh, though he seems to actually be a Romanian speaker rather than a 
Hungarian speaker, uh, Transylvania, which was uh, is populated by people speaking both Romanian and Hungarian and also German speakers. Uh, but Transylvania also became an Ottoman territory around this time. And Dracula used to wage guerrilla wars against Ottoman Turks. So uh, this is an important place in weird fiction. Yeah, it really is. And and just to even get more history on this, if this is the sort of thing that you go to weird fiction for, uh, I really recommend the book The Historian by uh, Elizabeth Kostova, I believe her name is, who basically takes Dracula uh, and puts it in a historical context. And it's epistolary. It's a brilliant uh, homage and pastiche and you know historical account of uh, the ideas and historical period around Dracula. But yeah, this count here uh, sort of reminds me a little bit of Dracula. I'm surprised that he died and that the weird stuff isn't around the count. But the count seems to really have lost his focus as a result of what he learned about Strigoi Kovar from this lacquered box. And that's kind of what killed him. Uh, maybe he realized he's, he's a count over a place that should be destroyed and so kind of sacrifices himself. That might be something we, we can take up in the discussion if we want. But now, regardless of what Strigoi Kovar was once, now it's a really nice town and all the people are pretty nice and they remember Justin Jeffrey and what they understand why he went mad when the narrator brings it up to them. They tell the narrator that Justin Jeffrey was kind of strange to begin with, but then he just spent way too much time hanging around the Black Stone. <laughs> and this reference to the Black Stone really excites the narrator because now he knows he's in the right place. And his host or tour guide or whomever, uh, they might be the same person is what I'm saying, tells him exactly how to get to the Black Stone. No one in the town really goes near the Blackstone or even likes to think about it all that much because it's a, quote, demon haunted thing. And you definitely want to stay away from it on Midsummer Night. I should say, you know, I said summer vacation here before, but that's not really a given uh, until a little bit later on in the story. Anyway, it's close to Midsummer Night while, while this guy's on the narrator's on vacation. The host of the narrator actually knew someone who was up there on Midsummer Night once when he was a kid. The host was a kid. And this guy came back with just an absolutely shattered mind. Also, the tavern keeper's nephew slept near the stone once when he got lost in the mountains, and he still has some serious business nightmares as a result. So, right, the narrator's on vacation, and he should be doing vacation stuff like going to the pub, which it turns out is the oldest building in Strigoi Kavar that pre-exists the Turkish, the Turkish destruction of the town. And it turns out that the Turkish army burned the town down and also killed everyone in the town when they invaded, which wasn't strictly speaking their custom to do because there was just something awful about the people in Strigoi Kavar. And the current inhabitants really don't feel all that bad about that either, about the fact that once the people that inhabited their town were completely wiped out. And this is because there are stories still floating around about the original inhabitants of the town who were evil as the stories go. There are stories that they would raid other towns and steal the girls and children, the infants really, and also we get this weird note here about the 
purity of their blood. That's an editorial comment on my part. That's not what's written here. What is written is that they mixed and intermarried freely with a, quote, degraded aboriginal race, which is, you know, not a good thing, according to these people. Uh, So it's really forgivable that they were all eradicated. And as the narrators listening to them talk about this portion of the history of Strigoikovar, he really doesn't think much of it because this kind of tale he realizes all over Europe, where people who are seen as evil or pagan or impure are in, in some sense are that way because they'd intermarried with some other aboriginal race. And of course, these stories include some tales of Celtic tribes and He's aware of this type of common origin narrative of people who have been destroyed by warfare. This is very race sciencey here, and this is how a lot of races and fantasy work, I think, on some level. Uh, but I don't know. It, it really jumped out to me here in in this story. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take that up in the discussion. There's like a whole section of my outline that is just about this paragraph. So we will by <laughs> we will be dissecting that. But part of what he's saying here about like the picks and and Celts and so on is he he's he's talking about the idea that uh, that fairies or elves, dwarves were real human beings who just were shorter than other people who moved into to Britain or Scandinavia. And now there's this like cultural memory of these shorter people that's gotten uh, fantasticized in this way. That That's what he's invoking, which is something we've talked about before, both here on Elder Sign and on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast as, as well. But I really love all of this backstory here. Like this scene in the local tavern is awesome. This is, you know, it's a stock scene of the, the genre, right? Of we- at least the genre of weird travel stories. Anyway, I mean, you always have to stop in the local drinking establishment. You have to get some information that you can either misunderstand or disregard or, or both, as, as Howard has uh, his narrator do here. <laughs> and, and Howard does this one, I think, really well, right? He lays some crumbs. He piques our interest. The only thing that is missing in this scene, I think, is a description of the local booze. <laughs> Surely, right? Nestled in these fur-covered mountains, as he's called them so far, there's got to be some local herbal liqueur that we could have gotten at least a paragraph about. (laughs) (laughs) I think he blew his word count on uh, citations and uh, (laughs) moth-eaten books that he couldn't write us a paragraph about local gin. Oh, that's true. Farnsworth, uh, the editor of Weird Tales, probably told him he had to pick one. You can write about (laughs) books or you can write about booze, but I'm not giving you word count for both. Yeah. I mean, it is it is kind of wonderful. All this sort of stuff we've seen, like races, even race, it really comes up in uh, weird fiction an awful lot, especially, you know, we see that kind of come through the influence that these sorts of stories, uh, the weird fiction writers and also Jack Vance had on uh, Dungeons and Dragons, which has recently kind of been asked to adjust some of the way they talk about fantasy races. But it is fascinating. It's a big part of this world. It's a big part of the thinking of the like mid mid to late 19th and early 20th century as well, uh, even to the mid middle of the 20th century. So it's certainly a part of our uh, kind of shared cultural past. And, you know, it's also how Battlestar Galactica ends. Uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a part of our pop culture now, too. Well, the narrator goes on to tell us that he got directions from his host to where the Black Zone where the Blackstone is, and then he goes hiking out in the mountains and finally gets to see the monolith. And here is the description we get of it. I'm going to read it. 
It was octagonal in shape, some 16 feet in height and about a foot and a half thick. It had once evidently been highly polished, but now the surface was thickly dinted as if savage efforts had been made to demolish it. But the hammers had done little more than to flake off small bits of stone and mutilate the characters, which once had evidently marched up in a spiraling line round and round the shaft to the top. Up to 10 feet from the base, these characters were almost completely blotted out so that it was very difficult to trace their direction. I was positive that they symbolized no language now remembered on the face of the earth, I am fairly familiar with all hieroglyphics known to researchers and philologists, and I can say with certainty that those characters were nothing of which I have ever read or heard. Just on a style note here before moving on, one thing Howard does uh, is give us like negative descriptions here, like like they symbolized no language or he, he uses it in some nature descriptions earlier. It's something I really like about Howard's writing or maybe what developed in weird uh, fiction as a style point. Negative descriptions are something I really enjoy, but uh, I don't know. That's just a, that's a Brandon taste point. In any event, these, these symbols remind the narrator of some weird writing he saw on a giant rock when he was in the Yucatan. And now I have to wonder like what this guy does for money. If he's got all this time (laughs) to track down books and travel the world. Yeah. This is the question I had here too, right? I mean, (laughs) I'm actually interested in this rock in the Yucatan. I'm going to want to talk about it in the discussion, but yeah, that was the main thing that jumped out to me here as well. It was like, who is this guy that like he's can claim that he's fairly familiar with all the hieroglyphic languages known to philologists. Like, what is his job? Like, what's his function, his station in life? He tells us that this trip is meant to be a vacation, but a vacation from what? I want to know. And we, do, we don't ever find out. <laughs> That's my real core question of the story. It's the only unanswered question I have. What is he on vacation from? <laughs> yeah. And how do I get this job? <laughs> exactly. Well, he, he is at the Blackstone. And after studying it for a while, he has no real other insights into it uh, other than that this thing is really strange it's alien it's unique so he heads back to Strigoi Kavar and now he wants to get more information about the stone itself from the local population so he just wants to hear what anyone has to say about the stone so he seeks out the tavern keeper's nephew the one you know who had the nightmares and The narrator grills this guy on his dreams. The nephew says that he has the same dreams repeated every time he has them. And they are so vivid while he's dreaming, but they kind of fade upon waking. But he does remember some stuff. He remembers fire and a black drum being played. And he also remembers that the black stone isn't a monolith, but it's a spire That's really part of a big black castle. So that's really creepy. The the fire and drum stuff is really meant to, I think, evoke a a ritual sort of thing, which maybe we'll see come up here pretty soon. None of the rest of the villagers actually want to talk about the black stone, though, except for the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster says that he believes the town was originally inhabited by a fertility cult, which once threatened to undermine all of European civilization and gave rise to tales of witchcraft. And the original inhabitants called this town their home, 
Zuthultan. He doesn't think that the original villagers, who again were all killed by the Turks hundreds of years ago, built the Black Stone, but rather they used it as a site for worship and also ritual human sacrifice of the girls and the babies that these inhabitants had stolen and from other villages that they've raided. And he goes on to say that the Midsummer Night weirdness around the stone is probably just a rumor, the same way that the strange deity that these people worshipped was a rumor, and that there's really nothing to be afraid of. Whatever the stone was in the past, it's just a stone now. Well, the narrator has been hanging around Strogoykovar for a little while now, and he's gotten to know the schoolmaster. They kind of have become drinking buddies in some way, in some form or another. And one night after they were hanging out, the narrator realizes that it's actually midsummer night and this is where we learn that he's actually on a summer vacation so the narrator decides to hike up to the black stone again and see if these rumors about midsummer night are true in the weird light that the moon casts upon the the mountain the narrator feels as if he's looking at an old battlement rather than a mountainside so this idea about the mountain being an old castle is uh, kind of deep in his mind. And as he's hiking, he also begins to feel really paranoid, like somebody's following him. And it's really close to midnight when the witching hour begins. And so the narrator, in order to pass the time, decides to take a nap. When he wakes up, he is immediately filled with dread and terror. He's not alone anymore. It The area he's in around the Black Stone are full of people, and they are wearing strange and ancient costumes. First, he thinks that these people are the villagers who maybe dress up and have a strange ritual. And hey, that's a really cool story idea, too. (laughs) But then he realizes that these are not the folks from Strigoykovar. They are of a different race. These folks form a half circle around the monolith, and while the narrator is fairly close to them, we can hear and see them. He realizes he's not seeing them from a distance across space, but a distance across time. And what follows here in the story is a very long description, basically, of a, of a witch's Sabbath with all of the trappings you can expect. The people dance to mad, rhythmic music, and they have a girl and a baby with them. And some folks are floating in air, and what's going on with the girl and the baby is actually really terrible. It's it's very violent, and, and as you would expect from a, a call to is into human sacrifice. Lots of the people are experiencing what ex- appears to be like a, a religious ecstasy or a ritual ecstasy. The high priest sacrifices the baby. There are crazy looking animals, including this king of them, like a demonic toad-like creature that is sitting atop the monolith. And the priest is about to give the girl to the toad. And it's at this point that the narrator's brain just breaks and he loses consciousness. Yeah, I I don't really want to dwell on this ritual. I mean, it is quite disturbing. I'm I'm glad, Brandon, that you really kind of just zoomed over (laughs) a lot of it. I think that's what (laughs) I would have done as well. And like, if I were adapting this story to film, I would feel real compelled to make some significant changes here. But there are elements of this ritual that I'm going to want to talk about in the discussion. So we will revisit this in in maybe a little more detail than we've done here. But yeah, it's real disturbing, real disturbing ritual. It's very disturbing. And I think if you've read 
any witches sabbath stuff or even seen it you'll have a real seen it in film or horror movies you'll have a really good sense of what howard is doing here he's just not afraid to kind of cross that line uh and and just really make it truly awful which i'm not quite sure how i feel about honestly like i i don't think it's great to mine ritual sacrifice for entertainment uh but it does work really well on a on a horror level so I don't know. I got mixed feelings about him putting all this ritual human sacrifice in such detail in this story. Um, but it is truly horrifying, which as a horror story, that's what you go for. So I don't know. This is horror that is is shock rather than dread. Though, and I think I do prefer dread rather than shock is just a, a horror mode. But yeah, he is, he's, you know, he's not endorsing this, right? We can be clear about that. It is It is meant to horrify us. Yeah, and I, I'm with you as well. Dread is really my the mode of horror I really like. Dread and I suppose jump scares, jump scares without soundtrack spikes are really what I go to <laughs> horror movies for. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, this kind of shock thing, uh, disgust. We've talked about this when, when we've briefly brought up the difference between Stephen King and, and Dean Koontz as kind of the two, you know, bestseller horror writers. Stephen King is more of this kind of mode of shock and disgust. Uh, Dean Koontz is more is more dread and suspense. Anyway, let's move on with this story. <laughs> the narrator losing his mind is not, as is tradition, the end of this weird <laughs> tale. Uh, there's more to tell here. The narrator wakes up at dawn and everything is back in its place. Everything is still again. No evidence of anyone being at the site the previous night can be found anywhere. All that happened was, according to the narrator, was that he had had a terrible nightmare, and no wonder, because he's been just fixating on this stuff for a really long time. So he heads back down to town, and as he's hiking, he decides that, no, it it wasn't actually a nightmare. This is really what the old cult practiced. He just needs to prove it. So now he knows what to do. He remembers... Bahador, the scribe and soldier who was with the Turks when they found the black monolith and decimated Strigoykovar, and who died on the battlefield. His body was looted. The manuscript that he wrote before he died might offer proof of what the narrator had seen, and it might still be found because it was given to Count Boris right before he died and was buried in the rubble of his castle. And as no one has really excavated that site of the battlefield, maybe the narrator can find Boris's body and with it, the manuscript. If the account of this, I don't know, battle is true. If what Salim wrote matches what the narrator saw, then the narrator can prove to himself that what he witnessed was not just a nightmare. So the narrator leaves Trigoykovar and he finds the battlefield where Boris died and he digs up the stones and eventually he finds the bones of the count. Uh, even Robert E. Howard isn't that interested in this. He says, like, I don't know how I did it, but it's done. So <laughs> the, the narrator finds the lacquered case and he takes the case back with him to the new town tavern that he's in and, and in. And inside the case is a parchment and some squat object wrapped in silk. The narrator goes to sleep because he's been digging all day and hiking and he's really tired. So then he wakes up and he eats some supper. This is another great kind of delay tactic, though maybe it doesn't work as well here as, as it uh, had in the beginning. And then the narrator gets to work on the manuscript. 
because he's an expert in language, he's able to translate it, and he finds that it is full of terrifying details about the people of the monolith, the people of the Black Stone. And when he's finished his work on the manuscript, he takes the object wrapped in silk and uncovers it. And for him, this object is proof of both the manuscript's veracity and his own experience, but they're too horrible to exist. So he puts both of these objects, the manuscript and the object that he found wrapped in silk back in the lacquered case and tosses them into the Danube and hopes no one will ever find these things again. The manuscript of Salim and the stream object, as I said, did prove to the narrator that what he had seen was no nightmare. The Turks, it turns out, had fought a giant toad demon on the battlefield with steel blessed by the young Muhammad himself. And they sent that creature and its worshipers to hell where it belonged. And this is kind of both a literal and a metaphoric understanding of hell, I think. Uh, they really drive it into some deep caverns under the mountain and then they kill it, but they also collapse the, the passageways behind them. The object wrapped in silk was taken from the chain that the high priest wore around his neck that our narrator had seen. And this was an image of the toad demon itself. But all of that's well and good. The narrator isn't too worried about that. But what haunts him is the reality that though the toad demon existed and gathered worshipers about him, this was probably not an isolated case of something like this happening. Gods like this once crouched above the souls of men. And now the narrator understands what von Junst was talking about when he wrote of these keys. These are places that unlock and link us to the abhorrent past and perhaps the abhorrent present as well. The narrator knows that if men ever excavate around the black stone near Strigoikovar, they will find that giant castle often dreamed of by the tavern keeper's nephew. Man, writes the narrator, was not always master of the earth. And is he now? If such a monstrous entity as the master of the monolith somehow survived its own unspeakably distant epoch so long, what nameless shapes may even now lurk in the dark places of the world? And that's how the story ends. Yeah, what an ending. I, I love this bit about throwing the the object, the you know, the icon of this toad into the into the Danube, into the river. This is like basically the exact plot of the Lord of the Rings when like the one <laughs> ring falls off of Silder's hand. So like I just hope that like three thousand years later, Bilbo Baggins or, you know, the equivalent, you know, finds <laughs> finds this thing. <laughs> and so uh, and uh, we get another story. My thoughts are, are, you know, Indiana Jones shows up at this point and says, it belongs in a museum. And just, <laughs> the, you know, the narrator's the villain of, of an Indiana Jones adventure or something like that. <laughs> I uh, I would read that story for sure. But I do love the the cosmic horror element that we, we get here at the end with this idea that there are doors to other places in the cosmos and that they used to be active way back in our distant 
distant past, I guess. Uh, or in this case, actually, maybe as recently as the 16th century. That's maybe not clear and is, is definitely something we're going to want to talk about in the discussion. But it's not the first thing we're going to do. There's actually a lot that I want to talk about in this story. As I said at the top of this show, this is one of my favorite weird fiction stories of all time. So I have thoughts. I have an outline here in front of me of a conversation I would like to have with you, Brandon. But it is it is pared down, even though it is likely to, to take us a while to get through everything that I've got here. And so just to give a little roadmap, so the, the big ideas that I want to talk about here are really the way that Howard is using the past and using the wider world in this story. Uh, I want to talk about Howard's view of history. I want to talk about this cosmic horror stuff and the connections that Howard's material here has to, well, his own mythos, but maybe especially to Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith, like the other, other parts of the Weird Tales gang, the Weird Tales big three. But I actually want to start, I kind of want to ease into that stuff. So I actually want to start by, just by talking about the plot and, and, and character stuff here. And Really, what I want to know is, is you know, we've talked already about, like, who is this narrator? But what I want to know is what happens on the next page? What happens to the narrator now that he has visited the Black Stone at Midsummer? that he's witnessed uh, this ritual happen, that he's read this account and so on? Is he going to go mad? Is he going to be haunted by nightmares? Or is he somehow immune to those effects? I don't know if immunity is the right word. I don't think he's going to go mad. I think I think what happens next is that he finds another kind of out of the way misshelved book and finds another obscure reference in it and goes on another adventure. That's how that's how I think of this guy. Uh I don't really think of him as somebody necessarily who's immune to the effects, but I also don't think he is going to carry any uh, trauma of this event with him. I think he's more the kind of character who learns from something like this and is so better equipped for the next thing that he encounters. He feels more like a serialized uh, adventurer or hero than a uh, character in a weird tale. Uh, it's, it's one thing I really actually love about this unnamed narrator is you can imagine him. And, and maybe this has happened to some of our audience as well when they learn a, a field of study or something or discourse really well, uh, though the word discourse is really overused. I'm using it in a kind of technical sense here. and uh, Or they do like a literature review of something, and then they start seeing the gaps or the references that they can write the paper on or do the, do the next bit of work on. And he feels like that kind of person, except for for forgotten books and unwritten manuscripts uh, or, or unfinished manuscripts. And that's where I'd like to see him go next on the next page. The sense that I have is that he might actually be a, a professor at like Miskatonic University in Arkham or something like that, though he never tells us anything about that. Still, why he would have the entire summer free like this and you know not like have a manuscript for a book or at least an article or two or a conference to go to or something like that. Uh, none of that gets explained. But yeah, I think that that he is something more akin to Indiana Jones than what Lovecraft does. Lovecraft, of course, writes about lots of professors and likes to make sure we know that they are professors. I mean, he's invented, right, Miskatonic University, his own fictional Ivy League university. But Lovecraft's characters do tend to faint, as you pointed out in the recap, or go, you know, go mad, be, to succumb to these things. But, you know, this is Howard. Howard writes Conan. <laughs> he writes Solomon Kane. His <laughs> characters, he has, you know, he likes to have these iconic characters who are going to have adventure after adventure after adventure. It is possible, and something we might talk about as we, you know, not so much today, but as we go on with Howard's stories 
narrators in the future. If we come across other unnamed narrators, right, in contemporary settings like this, we can wonder if they're all the same person or not. I mean, you have occult detectives and things like that, but just the kind of, I don't know, person going around experiencing cosmic horror and not solving anything. Uh, I don't know if that would make the most compelling <laughs> series of tales, but I think if they're this deep in the research portion, I, I would probably love it uh, until, you know, as, as you build up to the final confrontation. It certainly works as a short story. Yeah, well, I mean, that is who Indiana Jones is, though, right? I mean, like he has this like horrifying <laughs> experience with the Ark of the Covenant that's also wrapped up in fighting Nazis on a submarine and stuff, right? Then, or really, I guess as a prequel to that, he gets wrapped up in the Thucky cult, actually witnesses a dude get his still-beating heart ripped out of his chest above a lava pit. <laughs> it's like magic stones, right? And then then he finds the Holy Grail and like maybe has the opportunity to live forever at Petra. I mean, that, and, but he just keeps going, right? He just, you know, that's the summer. Okay. Academic year starting up again. It's August. Got to get back to <laughs> New England or the Midwest. I don't know. I think it's probably Wisconsin where he teaches. Who knows? But uh, yeah, Indiana Jones is that person, but I wish we had more of that in print. And, and maybe we do. If listeners know about this, uh, we, we would love to hear about it because we'll definitely put that into the rotation here. Well, one more question that I've got just about the plot of this story before we get into the real uh, use of this story as a bit of, uh, of intellectual history uh, is simply, does this key, the monolith, the black stone as a key, does it still work, right? Is, is the monolith still an active danger to earth, to humanity, or is it just a disturbing record? I think the text is pretty clear that it's the latter. It's it's does not still work except on this one night when I don't know the distance between hell and earth is is shortened for some reason on midsummer night or I don't know the echo of the past is more readily witnessable. So my sense is that it's no longer a threat, but that it would be preferable to all of humanity if this black castle remained buried and none of the caverns are really explored. Yeah, though I I want that story. <laughs> For sure, right? right? <laughs> it's somehow kind of the, the exact plot of Aliens and also the second Ghostbusters movie. Like, that's what I'm <laughs> envisioning to kind of match up for that. I don't know. That would be great. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a story that needs to be told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this story is so amazing here, the Blackstone, right? Just for just for how active it makes my, my own imagination that we could just sort of spin off these story ideas here. I mean, none of these are maybe very good. They're certainly not very detailed, but uh, I would love for listeners to, to take them and, and run with them and then share the results with us. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, let's move on to, to talking about history and, and Howard here, or Robert E. Howard's relationship with history and his use of history in this story. Uh, one thing I will say is that the listener who nominated this story is a scholar. And so I really want to focus on scholars and scholarship in this story. And I, I'm going to start just by giving a little timeline here, where I just want to kind of summarize all of the information that we get in this story and, and submit it to you, Brandon. I don't know, submit for your approval. I'll steal that from Rod Serling, but just to make sure that I've got it right, that we're all on the same page together. So the, the timeline is that there is this prehistoric cult. This cult then survives through the migrations of Slavs and Magyars into this part of the, the world, into what we call Hungary today in the early Middle Ages. That's when the Slavs and Magyars arrived. Then we've got an Ottoman army discovering this cult during the conquest of Hungary in 1526. This army destroys the village, they destroy the villagers, and they also destroy the toad beast that lives in the cave that isn't actually a cave. 
Then at some point after 1526, the village is refounded. We don't get anything, at least not that I saw, that specifies when that is. So I'm guessing that that's actually probably not for close to 200 years when Ottomans lose control of this territory. So this is probably an uninhabited area for 150 to 200 years, is is my sense. I don't know if that sounds right to to you, Brandon. The only issue I take with that is that the the old building that they use for the tavern pre-exists the second settlement of this village. And I just, I don't know, that just wouldn't work. I mean, nature would have reclaimed that if it was 200 years. Well, it's not the building though. It's only the foundation. Fair point. He actually makes a point that the building itself is gone. That's actually part of the evidence I'm using to make my claim. (laughs) Well, I accept your point that I stand corrected. (laughs) All right. Well, what I really want to do here is just zoom in on some of the items on this timeline. And I want to start with, you know, we'll start at the beginning. So let's start with the prehistoric cult that survives into early modernity. Uh, Margaret Murray, who is an Egyptologist and archaeologist at University College London. Uh, She worked there from uh, 1898 to 1935. She wrote this this book that listeners probably have heard of, though I don't know really anybody who's ever actually read this book, but it's a book called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. Uh, This was published in 1921. Margaret Murray was nearly 60 at this point when this was published and already had this this great uh, academic career at this point. But But this book is what we would today call pseudoscience. Its claims are pretty absurd and and, and just really totally unsubstantiated. But it was widely read in the 1920s. And maybe more importantly than like how widely it was read is that it was read by Lovecraft. And then I don't actually know if Howard ever read it uh, so much as Lovecraft, you know, wrote him a 100 page letter <laughs> summing up the, the main points it's like actually this is half the book you don't need to read it yourself but what murray's positing here in this book in the the witch cult in western europe is that the witches of early modern europe right we've, we've encountered in some weird fiction stories before uh, people know from you know the, the crucible and so on right uh, that these witches from the 16th and 17th century were really the last survival of a prehistoric religion that existed through antiquity existed through the middle ages and then here into early modernity before it was wiped out through all those famous witch trials and executions. And this religion was just a regular religion. It was principally about the passing of the seasons. It was also interested in fertility. It was not, you know, sinister in the way that we've got a sinister religion here. But the god at the center of the cult was horned. Uh, and so he became associated with the devil in medieval and early modern Christianity because the devil in in, in that religion or the, the, his, that historical part of Christianity was this horned creature as well. And as I said, this was hugely influential on Lovecraft, also other weird fiction writers at this time in the 20s and the 30s, uh, but also hugely influential on the development of Wicca a little bit later in the 20th century. But it has just totally been discredited by scholars. And obviously, right, there is a similar idea here in the Black Stone. But what I really want to talk about, Brandon, and just get your thoughts on is, is what has Howard done to adapt this idea for his own purposes? Well, I think the the main move that Howard has made is to lean into a fear of otherness uh, as part of kind of not not just talking about these wars, but talking about the local understanding of this fertility cult. The idea is is that there's kind of a normative at least a monotheistic understanding of religion, because we have uh, Muslims in this story as well. Uh, And then 
ostensibly Christianity is kind of like the norm, the background. He doesn't need to say people are Christian in Europe uh, because that's just understood. So the move he's made is to make this cult, this fertility cult, something truly horrifying and evil. It's not just a horned thing they worship. It's a different kind of master. Uh, it's it's a toad thing. And then all of these other beasts were real gods. So he's brought in the, also the element of cosmic horror, where there were once all these other different types of gods that people had access to. So I guess in one way, he's subtly challenging the norm of monotheism that and saying what a horrifying and terrifying world it would be if the gods that these old ancient cults worshipped were all real and they were local deities and this sort of thing. And I think that's the kind of main move that he's making is asking that what if question. What if our understanding of the present doesn't match with the reality of the past? Uh, and, I, and I think that's kind of how he's using those ideas. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. What Murray is doing is just really saying, isn't it really terrible that all of these people in the, the 16th and 17th century were tried and, and many of them executed for just practicing their religion, that they were persecuted for their religion. But what Howard is doing here is saying, yeah, but like, what if their religion was totally true? What if they knew something horrifying about the, the true nature of the cosmos and we actually killed them all. And so now we can't talk to them about that. We can't talk to anyone practicing that religion, find out what they know so that we can do something to protect ourselves from this, this coming back. Although on the other hand, of course, they did kill the toad God. So like, that's good. I guess you should kill, you should, you should kill toad gods when you find them, I guess. Yeah. That, that's a pretty standard uh, rule of life. I think any, any type of slimy reptilian God, uh, if you can find a way to kill it, even if it's a, Gaul, uh, you get rid of it. Yeah, that's the standard operating procedure for every D&D campaign. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, as I said, I do want to talk about this ritual. We won't go over it in any graphic detail, but I want to point out some things about it. So there are three women and, and one man involved in the ritual here. And, and the women are each at different stages in life. There's uh, an, a very young woman, I mean, an adolescent, right? Uh, maybe even or just around like 13 or, or 14. And then there is uh, a woman who's recently become uh, a mother. And then there is an, an old woman. And we might actually give these women the labels maid, mother, and and crone. And this image of, of three women at these distinct, uh, these specific phases of, of their lives, uh, this image is really linked with ideas about witchcraft that were super popular in the early and middle parts of the 20th century. And so you'll, you'll see like depictions of the, the witches from Macbeth, for example, following this convention, right, where one of them will be really young, one of them will be, I don't know, like 30, and then another one will be be an, an old woman. But its appearance here is actually pretty early, right? Yeah, this in the 1930s, though it is also pretty subtle, I think. And also Neil Gaiman really likes this idea. So it's actually something that Brent and I talk about a lot over on our Neil Gaiman podcast, uh, hanging out with the, the Dream King, because this is in like every issue of the Sandman ever is this idea of the maid, the matron and the crone. And I had never actually noticed it in this story before. I'm not sure I would have noticed it if Brent and I weren't talking about this idea incessantly, because Howard doesn't really give us any kind of 
like cosmology for these people, other than that, you know, the monolith is a key and uh, there's a toad god demon thing. Yes, I agree with you that Gaiman does this a lot. I think it's even in Neverwhere that he has like three witches uh, <laughs> that are that are these different ages. I can't quite recall if that's true, but I, I certainly remember um, something along those lines. But yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. If, if it's a, a purely a matter of a representational symbol, uh, a signifier of what Howard is getting at, then it, it, it might be too subtle to work at this point in writing. But looking back, I think it's it's a really cool way to signify exactly what you're going for in terms of representation. And I guess what really struck me about this is that it, it seemed early to me because I think of the, the popularity of this idea as really stemming from Robert Graves, who wrote I, Claudius, which, you know, I don't know, everybody used to know. Maybe people don't know I, Claudius anymore. But but Robert Graves, who wrote I, Claudius, also wrote a really uh, interesting, really heartbreaking memoir about coming home from the First World War called Goodbye to All That and, and then actually couldn't go home again, just went to Majorca instead of back to Britain, uh, just lived in a hut and wore cool sweat and wrote books all day. He was really a classical scholar by training, but he wrote a book called The White Goddess that was published in early 50s, I think it was published. And it's actually positing something very similar to what Margaret Murray posits, except that he doesn't try to connect anything to actual like modern or early modern witches. But he does argue that we can find in Greek and and Roman and other Mediterranean, uh, ancient, I should say, ancient Mediterranean uh, religious stories, things like things that we like to call Greek mythology, uh, that we can find traces of a religion that actually predates all of that. That's the religion of the people who lived there before uh, Greek speakers and Indo-Europeans, maybe we should say in general, arrived in Europe. And he believes that we can find through doing this kind of philological study of uh, and, and like comparative religion study of these stories and artwork as well, I should say, that Graves posits that we can see that the original religion of pre-Indo-European people living in Europe was a fertility religion that was a part of a, a matriarchal society, and that the idea of the the goddess having this sort of three characteristics, the, the maid, the matron, and the crone, that's really Robert Graves' idea. But it just seemed to be here in this story as well, even though Howard doesn't call any attention to it. So I just didn't know what to do with that. So I don't know that I really have anything more to say about it other than to ask for input from our listeners. If It just seems to me there's actually a whole book that could be written here. I want to know where Howard got this idea, or if it's just totally coincidental, um, which which I you know I would be willing to believe. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I know very little about uh, the fertility cults in general or witchcraft. So, I mean, I just, uh, I yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm sure our listeners will. Right. Well, I should say that nobody believes Robert Graves either. I mean, his his idea there in the White Goddess is, is as discredited as Murray's is, though all of this stuff is really super interesting. I mean, we were talking about this as well, right, when we did Houses Under the Sea by, by Caitlin R. Kiernan, the sort of pseudo-scientific ideas that were really, really popular in the, the 20th century. I don't know. That's something I'd actually kind of love to do a podcast series about if, you know, I had a time machine. And by time machine, I mean a machine that extends how many hours are in a day or removes my 
sleep or something like that. <laughs> well, we all know from that episode of Angel what happens when you remove your sleep. So <laughs> yeah, it's a real bad idea. So I'm not going to be doing that. Well, let's let's move to I think what is really probably the the main feature of the discussion here. You pointed this out in the recap, Brandon, and we we did try to draw attention to the fact that we were going to talk about it, and that is scientific racism, which is all over really like everything written in the 1920s and the 1930s, but it is especially all over Robert E. Howard. So let's take a look at Howard's understanding of who these toad worshipers are. And I just want to read this passage from page 163, uh, page 163 of the Del Rey edition that we're uh, reading from here, by the way, called The Horror Stories of Robert E. Howard. Here's what Howard writes. The original inhabitants of Strigoikovar had been in the habit of making stealthy raids on the lowlands and stealing girls and children. Moreover, he said that they were not exactly of the same blood as his own people. The sturdy, original Magyar Slavic stock had mixed and intermarried with the degraded aboriginal race until the breeds had blended, producing an unsavory amalgamation. And we did hint at this a little bit in the, the recap segment here, Brandon, but what stands out to you in the description of the various inhabitants of this village? Well, it's the tacit under understanding, first of all, that uh, there are superior and inferior races. And we're not talking about something like, uh, I don't know, Homo sapiens versus Neanderthals or something like that. But the, this, this idea that the races kind of don't intermix. Uh, we we had a word for that called miscegenation, which uh, was, you know, now we have laws that you can't make miscegenation laws. Uh, so it, it's just, it, it's this mindset that there is a hierarchy of races, that um, there were maybe intelligent species of mankind prior to homo sapiens that like we're intermixed with, but they're worse than us because we won. Um, but Howard also draws in this kind of fantasy element as well. It's also the disparaging use of the word like Aboriginal that's uh, all over the place in this story as well. Like there's something inferior about people who live there out their traditional lives uh, and don't keep up with modern times. There are two things going on here that are actually kind of strangely in, in conflict with each other. And the, the first of them is this scientific racism, which is what, what you really were talking about for the, for the most part there, which is this idea that the characteristics of people groups actually lie in the blood of these people, not learned behavior, right? That their characteristics aren't culture that you learn, that there's actually somehow some kind of biological component to that. And it's really, really important here for Howard that the Slavs and Magyars, who are immigrants to this part of the world, they, they moved to this part of the world that's, that's now called Hungary, named after the, the Magyars, I guess. Uh, but they come to this part of the world and there are already people there. But it is really important for Howard that the Slavs and the Magyars are not merely converted to this religion, right? That like they show up, they find there's people there. Those people are like, oh, hey, new people, you want to live over there and do some farming or something? And, you know, we've got this uh, this monolith up on the hill that we go and worship. There's like a toad god. We kill some babies. Super fun. Do you want to come do that with us? We'd love to welcome you to our religion. That is not what happened, right? Because this conversion for Howard is really the side effect of this mixed race breeding, right? The, the religion is like a genetic disease, Yes, it's it's very 
strange, I think, to our ears to consider culture and race as the same thing. And, you know, this is nationalism, right? I mean, it's kind of this attitude uh, that that leads to uh, eugenics laws and World War II in some sense. Right. Nationalism is the other thing that is that is happening here. And in, in particular, the way that nationalism relates to the boundaries, the political boundaries within Europe. Right. A big component of nationalism is that the political boundaries of Europe should correspond to ethnic boundaries, but that they need to correspond to ethnic boundaries as they existed at some moment in the distant historical past. The question always has been, though, when should that moment be? You get a different answer for each ethnic group, which just seems wildly inconsistent and not at all scientifically rigorous. I mean, none of this is scientifically scientifically rigorous. We don't really believe these things anymore. But Usually, when these conversations were happening in the 19th century and and then being enacted here in Eastern Europe in the 20th century, in the moment, actually, that Howard is writing, I mean, Hungary itself is an independent state only as a result of the end of the First World War, the the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. So this is really only, you know, 13 years after that. But usually in these conversations, that moment is wrapped up in the fall of the Roman Empire um, and, and also what's called the, the Great Migrations, uh, the, the Volkerwanderung in, in German. And here, Howard actually takes two distinct groups of migrants who are you know, wrapped up in the, the Volkerwanderung, uh, the Great Migrations, and that's the Slavs and the, the Magyars. And he refers to them as original inhabitants of this land, even though there are other people already here. So in what way then actually, right, we have to ask, are Slavs and Magyars actually original if there are other people here? Uh, and obviously, as well, right? The mixed race breeding of Slavs and Magyars who come to this area centuries apart from each other, like separated by 400 years, but the intermingling, the reproducing of Slavs with Magyars and vice versa is totally fine for Howard. But Slavs and Magyars or Slavs or Magyars making babies with these other inhabitants is not for some reason. Like I don't even, I can't even really understand how that would work, right? Like if Howard were alive and I could ask him to rationalize that, to show me where that's consistent, I don't think he could do it. Well, I just want to tie all of this up and sort of bring the the scientific racism and then this nationalism together here. And just to say that what we've got here is, is Howard telling us a story that is about the crime of not maintaining racial purity. And then there's a punishment for that, which is that this whole village is executed, uh, executed by f- conquering foreigners as as well as a, as a punishment for them for doing that. And then when those conquering foreigners are finally driven out, right, this, this village can be repopulated by people who are racially pure, who have you know, followed the rules and kept the purity of their, of their blood, right, of their, their race. And they get this soil that rightfully belongs to them. They get that back. Of course, right? And so this is a story about blood and soil, which is an ugly phrase, right, that is wrapped up in Nazism. And of course, these ideas here are at the core of Nazism. These are the ideas that lead to the Holocaust and the Second World War. And here they are in in this in this story. I think it would be a mistake to say that these ideas were not really broadly present in American 
intellectual life in the first half of the 20th century. And we see that in, you know, this popular fiction here. And it's kind of horrifying. I mean, maybe that's the scariest part of the story. You know, the the scariest thing is the normalcy with which these ideas are presented as good in a horror story about really witchcraft and demonic practices. Now, yeah, demonic practices, perhaps also not great if real, but I think using that (laughs) as uh, uh, using something imaginary as a justification for the uh, essentially eradication of a local people group who are not right, who you believe don't rightfully belong there is, is kind of a horrifying idea for a story in itself. And I think it's stuff like this. uh, These themes, which are so present in the background, in the minds of, of writers of early weird fiction, that has been turned around by, I don't know, people, people like Victor Lavelle, who we've brought up on this podcast, or the writers of uh, Lovecraft Country, who are taking this kind of really ugly history of weird fiction and using it to tell really great new horror stories. And uh, I don't know, I'm glad we have this fiction, but man, there's some real ugly thoughts that are that are assumed in the writing of them by these by these writers. Right. What exactly matters here is not that Howard was some weirdo with fringe beliefs that we, of course, find disgusting and that his contemporaries found disgusting. We do find them disgusting, but his contemporaries did not. These were really just unexamined assumptions about the world. Howard just grew up thinking this is this is what the world is like. This is what is true about the world. And everyone he knew thought this as well. And that's the real horror of these of these ideas. When we look back to the uh, late 19th and early and middle 20th century is that we see these ideas simply taken for for granted. They are not examined. And I find that really fascinating the way that they are at work here. And this is a story really that is a a kind of a a romance about 19th century scholars who are engaged in this business. It's a story about 19th century scholars discovering and cataloging and classifying the, the world. I mean, their work is incomplete, right? But they have made some real crazy discoveries that other people need to follow up on. And that's really where our narrator comes into it. And so the story opens with a, a history of, of Von Junst's nameless cults. We get two other made up books in the, the opening as well. Uh, these are the, the Remnants of Lost Empires by Otto Dostman. And then we get Turkish Wars by Larson. And each of these books holds a piece or sometimes pieces of clues, I guess, that the the narrator needs in order to get all of this together, to piece all of this together and discover what's really going on. But what I want to talk about here is what Howard thinks scholars who study the human past do and how these books are made. And and so I want to see if we can figure that out for really for each of these these scholars. And so the, the question I want to put to you here, Brandon, is what is von Junst's method? Like, How does he actually know what he knows? How is he doing his research? Well, he's doing some sort of uh, sociological or anthropological research, it seems to me, where he's like actually going to these cult meetings or something like that or reading their manuscripts or documents. So he's in some sense, you know, doing a social science is my understanding. He's 
studying these groups and what they believe. He's reading their manuscripts. Uh, he's also reading old books to discover about them. And he's going around and, and visiting the places where they worshipped. That is my sense of what he's doing, though he never does, I think, visit this black monolith. Um, so his method is, I think, observational first and then research-based second. That's my understanding of the of what we uh, get about von Eunst in this story. And then, of course, this leads to his demise because he learned too many dark things. Yeah, that's my sense as well. Von Eunst is not a historian. He's not interested primarily in the past. He's interested in cults of his own day. And I, you know, my understanding was that he really just like joins a bunch of these cults and pretends to like be into it so that he can learn their secrets. And then he wrote them down. Uh, you know, that is maybe a type of sociology or, or maybe more a type of like field anthropology, I suppose, but really also it's kind of investigative journalism. And of course, the, the story there that is really unwritten or, you know, like is not the main story. It's only kind of this, this backstory here for the black stone is he also discovered that some of this stuff is actually real, right? That some of these cults know some real stuff that they're worshiping some real things. And I would love to read a story, as I said, at the top of the show, that's really from the perspective of von Junst that's following him on one of these escapades. And I guess if it was going to be a film, this would have to be played by Tom Cruise, right? I'm just kind of envisioning eyes wide shut i suppose at that point <laughs> yes the worst detective movie ever made but but one of my favorite movies of all time <laughs> <laughs> all right let's uh let's talk about larson so larson is the historian who gives us the account of uh of count boris vladinov uh, dying just at the exact moment that he reads some papers that were uh, taken from a turkish scribe who had just died in this battle that is actually still ongoing like he's just like dies in this this pile of, well, I guess it's not rubble well, it's falling on him, right? But there's a cannon shot, the, the wall falls on him, and now he's in this rubble. But I immediately needed to know how Larson came by this information, because it's pretty rare to have this level of detail about the circumstances of someone's death from 400 years ago, 400 for Howard, it's actually 500 for us, right? Because he's giving like direct speech. He's like narrating that, you know, he takes possession of this, of this, uh, this case and he reads this thing. Someone's just handed it to him and he's talking to somebody else. Uh, how would he, how would he know that? How does he have that information? Well, perhaps the the battlefield messenger here wrote his own account of the battle. He may have been a scribe himself. I, I don't think we're told precisely how we get this information, though. My understanding is that this was a pretty big battle, and so perhaps they know that uh, Count Boris never really left the battlefield. But the real question I have about why Boris uh, is in this story at all stems from maybe my lack of understanding that you might be able to help me with, Glenn, about like what counts are for. So like, would he have been responsible for the valley, the valley that the, you know, citizens of Strigoikovar lived in? And when he read this account, he, 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 I don't know, felt he had betrayed his own role as uh, an aristocrat in some sense. And maybe there's a thematic resonance with this story about how this count failed his duty of keeping this place pure in, in some way. That's maybe my misunderstood reading of, of what he's doing in this story. And in fact, the invaders came in because the aristocracy failed in their duty in some sense. 
Well, I think that the, the the first assumption there might might be right, at least in terms of like what Howard is imagining here, because let's be clear, I don't think that Robert E. Howard actually knows all that much uh, about uh, about government and uh, land ownership in 16th century Hungary. I might be wrong. Maybe he actually had just you know gotten a book about that out of the Cross Plains Public Library and, and read something about it, but I suspect <laughs> not. And so I think he's just kind of envisioning a sort of fantastical version of, of feudalism here. I mean, he calls him a count. He also calls him a knight. He's also real clear to point out that he is Polish hyphen Hungarian, right? So like his ethnic labels are, are super important to Howard. This goes back to the the scientific racism and the the nationalism as as well, that like Howard has to know that about these people and he has to make sure we know it as well. Uh, but yeah, I think that's probably right. I think this is probably territory that he owns. Uh, and we, we actually can go back to the post story of Metzengerstein, which is also talking about uh, feudal aristocrats in Hungary around this time, probably a little bit later. My guess would be that it's, it's a century after this. Uh, but th- this would have been an idea the idea here would be that all of the land is owned by aristocrats. So the village is actually the property of an aristocrat uh, and that the, the people who live in the village pay, you know, tolls, taxes, duties, or, or tithes, something like that. They'll have a variety of different names, both in, in currency. Uh, well, I said both, but it's going to be currency, kind, and labor. That's three things, not two. Uh, to that count sort of annually uh, in order to live in the village and have access to farms and all of that sort of thing is probably what Howard is envisioning. Uh, but you know, it's not like the, the the count would actually live in this village or something. He, he's going to live somewhere else, and and has is, is going to have other types of possessions and so on. But yeah, I think that you're right there, that that's what Howard has in mind, that the Count feels like he should have known that this was going on. That's one of the things that he that would be his responsibility as the owner of this land is also to make sure that the the, the Christian, in this case, uh, Catholic church is functioning properly. Uh, he's appointing priests, he's appointing bishops in his territory, or, or at least vetting them in some way, depending on the, the sort of precise constitutional relationships uh, in this specific case that, you know, Howard just does not spell out for us because, hey, this is all made up, this village, this person, and so on. <laughs> but yes, I think, oh, that's a long way of, of saying, yes, I think your impulse there is right, that he feels like he failed, that it should have been his duty uh, to do this for sure. But yeah, I was really just thinking about how does Larson have this information, which is really just to say that I don't actually know what the accounts are of the conquest of Hungary or really any of these battles in Eastern Europe uh, in the 16th century. I know that we have Ottoman sources that uh, would not, I don't think, really have been available. I mean, we know that the narrator here doesn't read Turkish, so uh, would not have been available to him uh, at that point. Uh, But I don't know what other types of sources there would have been. But even this level of detail is just sort of weird for pre-modern accounts of, of battles. So like, Contemporary to this, uh, you can read the letters of Hernan Cortes, for example, also from the 1520s. Well, he's conquering Mexico, and you just they just don't read like that. You don't get that type of direct speech and that sort of thing, uh, sort of level of graphic description. So my sense is that Larson himself has kind of embellished this. Uh, you know, I just wanted to see what the footnote in Larson was there, but Howard does not give us that. <laughs> Well, there's one more person on this list, and that is Dostman, so we'll talk about him. So apparently, he is a, a type of art historian who who likes to write about ruins. I don't really want to dwell on his methodology at all, but there is something that really, really super jumped out to me in Howard's invocation of Dostman, and I'm going to read this. Here's the line that we get. Von Junst mentioned Otto Dostman's theory that this monolith was a remnant of the Hunnish invasion and had been erected to commemorate a victory of Attila over the Goths. 
Von Jones contradicted this assertion without giving any refutory facts, merely remarking that to attribute the origin of the Black Stone to the Huns was as logical as assuming that William the Conqueror reared Stonehenge. Now, I like this joke. I did actually laugh out loud at this the first time that I ever read this story. But there is actually something insidious here that became really relevant to me when I went into teaching humanities and, and uh, that I also think is extraordinarily important in our public discourse, our public conversations today, especially our, our political conversations. And that is that Howard quietly endorses the idea that the burden of proof is not on the person making the claim but on the person refuting the claim. And so if that's true, then we can just make any claim we want. And the only way to refute that claim is to offer evidence that it is not true, right? Pointing out logical fallacies, which is what von Jönz does here, that is not enough. And, and, and so the claim, no matter how absurd the claim is, the claim has to be given credence. It really, right, the burden is, is on proving a negative, which is actually not possible even to do. Listen, what we're talking about here is critique of enlightenment, right? That that the purely rational mind and the purely individual rational mind, we're saying is actually not enough to make a society function, a community function, that we actually don't have it all within us to be experts, to be have the potential to do anything we want to do. Like it's it's really important that we exist as communities, not as individuals. And uh, this kind of idea that the purely rational mind needs nothing else but the the rational mind alone is kind of um I don't know, not a great not a great place to be in society, I'd say, <laughs> where it's led to. No, not at all. And this this really concerns me. I mean, I mean, you know, hopefully post COVID, I'll I'll get back to work in a classroom, uh, doing a teaching job again. And this is the sort of thing that I'm supposed to be doing as a teacher, right? Is is teaching critical thinking, right? That's that's the fundamental thing that humanities are are teaching students. And this is something that I'm seeing more and more in students is this idea not that. If you're going to make a claim about something, you have to prove your case. And and all I have to do is listen, listen skeptically and say, you either convinced me or you didn't convince me. And that's it. If I say you didn't convince me, that's where my burden stops. I don't have anything else that I have to do at that point. But students I, over the, you know, the last, I'd say, six, seven years really have are uncomfortable with that idea. They really need then to know what's the What's the alternative explanation, right? You can't just say, yeah, I've heard your evidence and I'm just not convinced. They need a counter proposal that can, that can actually persuade them. And so you can, you can translate this to, you know, something that's super important to, you know, all of us in modernity, but it is, I think, definitely at the core, right, of, of, of our cultural identity as Americans is the idea of innocent until proven guilty. And so let's just envision that this is a murder trial and you're on the jury there and, you're simply supposed to be listening to the prosecutor prove to you that someone has con has committed this crime. Someone has has murdered someone else. And the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. It is not the defense attorney's job to go figure out who actually did commit the murder and present that to you. It's simply their job to point out that the prosecutor's evidence is not very good. And that's it. You don't have to actually have an alternative explanation. You just have to say, yeah, that evidence is not necessarily convincing enough that 
I am going to send someone to jail or send someone to be executed for it. I don't need to have an alternative explanation. I just need to say that evidence is not convincing. But my students have, have over the past few years, I've really noticed that they're uncomfortable with that idea. And that's a real problem. So anyway, that just really jumped out to me here. It was like it was like just like pulsating in red as I was reading it on the on the page there. So that's uh, that's everything that I wanted to do with the way that Howard is engaging with history as uh, an academic discipline, engaging with scholarship and and also looking there at Howard, uh, looking at this story, I should say, as a bit of of intellectual history, as a remnant of intellectual history, an artifact that we can examine. So let's move into mythos connections now. So let's just talk, I think, just very generically, right, about what's happening in this story in terms of cosmic horror, right, which is that we are not alone. Uh, Beings from outer space or, or maybe other dimensions or maybe both have visited and even inhabited Earth in prehistory. At least some of prehistoric human culture and society was actually oriented toward these powerful aliens. Uh, And in fact, there were massive prehistoric civilizations that are now almost completely invisible. But if we look hard enough, we can find remnants of them, like the discovery that there used to be some colossal Cyclopean temple fort complex here in Hungary, and that what appears to be a natural cliff in the mountains is actually the remnants of a massive castle wall, right? And that's what we've got here in this story. But Howard is also, I think, having some fun here by connecting this specific story with the work of his pen pals, uh, his pen pals and also Weird Tales colleagues, H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. And so I thought it would be fun to, to point some of those out. And so I don't know, Brandon, just like what's a connection that, that you enjoyed here? Yeah, well, this toad demon really reminds me of uh, the the door to Saturn, the the crazy wizard, dueling wizard becoming best friends buddy cop story we read um, uh, a while ago by Clark Ashton Smith. There's uh, the god there, Sathagwa. Sathagwa, yes, and uh, so yeah, that that's that's a connection there. Yeah, this just screamed Sathagwa to me. I mean, right, that story is called The Door to Saturn, and what Howard is calling these things is Keys to Outer Doors. Now, I don't think that that is actually Sathagwa here, but it suggests that maybe this is a creature related to Sathagwa in some way and, you know, might actually come from Saturn, right? Was sort of my sense, though. None of that really matters for the story, but it was fun to think about that sort of stuff. Uh, That I think the deeper cut here, and this might actually just be totally off base, but I, I really got excited about this uh, Yucatan excavation and also then the original name of this village here in Hungary, which is uh, Zuthultan, because I thought that that was all meant to evoke Cthulhu. Uh, which is supposed to sound like it's from the the Nahuatl language of of Mexico, uh, and you know Zuthu and Cthulhu sound kind of similar to to me. I mean, one spelled with an X and the others spelled with a TH, but they've both got you know lot, there's a lot of oo sounding there, and so that really jumped out to me. Though this connection that I'm trying to make here does not really stand up to any scholarly rigor because Nahuatl was not actually spoken in the Yucatan, but I will say that both Lovecraft and Howard are, I think, at least trying to invoke the idea that these Central American civilizations that did not have elaborate writing systems, but did have amazing architecture and and really awesome material culture, are somehow connected to a global prehistoric culture that's oriented towards aliens. And so that's also, I think, why the writing looks the same to the narrator, right? When he sees this on the the monolith, he says, oh, that reminds me of this, the stuff that I saw in the Yucatan, because we're supposed to understand that they're the same type of thing, right? 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I I was really thinking more along the lines in this story. What I was really hoping for was uh, to find out whether you had any knowledge because I've not read a lot of uh, Robert E. Howard. Whether he'd connected any of this story to the Hyborian Age because that's really his. You know, Robert E. Howard took this a next step further and wrote about in lost ancient civilization. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wondered if he had something specific in mind about this ancient Cyclopean castle and something we'd find in a, in a Conan story. Yeah. I wondered about that as well, because all of the people in the Conan stories and Conan's awesome. Lots of other people in those stories are awesome. Howard loves those people. Those people are all existing in, in Europe. This is Europe. It's the Mediterranean. It's North Africa. It's the, the Middle East are all existing in those places before the arrival of Indo-Europeans. I mean, we get that in the very first Conan story, the, the Phoenix on the Sword, which we, we did over on, on Patreon a, a real long time ago, like years ago now, I think. Uh, but that is all spelled out explicitly for us in that very first Conan story. So these would be the same type of people who are inhabiting this village who call it Zuthultan and are doing this ritual, this this horrible ritual, worshiping this toad god. And Howard doesn't like them uh, and and thinks that the people who have the claim to this soil by like the you know majesty of their blood are the Slavs and the Magyars. And so I'm not sure that like intellectually they can inhabit really the same space there. But I don't know. There's a whole book to be written about that just about that question it's like a whole scholarly book there is robert e howard uh, quietly critiquing himself or is he just a confused <laughs> man <laughs> well or, you know or are they just different speculative worlds here right they don't have to all be occupying the same uh, shared universe here i mean i mean they would today right we would demand that today uh but uh, but howard and, and lovecraft and smith weren't doing that they were just having a bit of fun and actually one more bit of fun here uh maybe more of a tangential connection there's something that i thought was really cool is this business here about uh, the, the special magic sword that is used to kill this toad beast that maybe is from saturn or something but in any case is you know bad business and the way he describes the way howard describes this sword is just it's just awesome he says slew it with flame and ancient steel blessed in old times by muhammad and with incantations that were old when arabia was young which is really just a which is just a great way to to bring the the long tradition of of arabic language culture into this world where ancient peoples and prehistoric peoples have all of this secret knowledge that it would be really great to have today. But I also thought that this was maybe tied specifically to the fact, right, that the Necronomicon is originally written by an Arab as well. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. What really jumped out to me was the way that Robert E. Howard is essentially saying, like, all religions have power and not just like explanatory power about the world or why things are the way they are or our origins or creation, but like there's real power in every religion essentially. And so by having this blessed by Muhammad, I mean, he's saying the Muslim God, uh, the God of the Islamic faith is somehow, you know, it's, you know, the same mon monotheistic God, it's the Abrahamic faiths, but that this God too has power. It's not like another invalid uh, religion. And that kind of really jumped out to me in, in this story as well. 
Yeah, and there's a whole urban fantasy spinoff story that could be told here, right? Maybe that's what the narrator does next, since he's not going insane the way everyone else goes insane from this thing. He's like, like go find this sword. Get this sword and do awesome, you know, fight monsters with this sword. That's the trick. I mean, uh, yeah, don't just stop. Stop digging in ruined castles that are now <laughs> rubble and doing this backbreaking labor. Just do the easier thing of getting a magic sword and slaying demons. <laughs> All right. Well, this is uh, this has been already a double length episode, but I've got one more question that I want to ask you, Brandon, before we uh, (laughs) we kick off here, which is simply what music were you listening to while you uh, read this story and prepared for the episode? I knew you were going to ask this question this week. <laughs> I started with uh, like trying to find a good epic fantasy like film soundtrack playlist, but it's just it's too distracting for me. Uh, and I was going through my iTunes this week, which I realize I haven't updated since like 2012 or 2013. <laughs> I don't think I've bought an album thanks to streaming services, which is heartbreaking on some levels. But um one of the guys who collaborated with Feist on her album, Let It Die, is named Chili Gonzalez. And that's his stage name. He's actually the brother of Christoph Beck, who scored oh. uh, a ton of Buffy episodes. And Frozen. Yeah. And he's uh, he's got some really good, just like chill solo piano albums. In fact, they're called Solo Piano. And they're a mix between Eric Satie. I would say his composition style is like a mix between Eric Satie and Aaron Copeland. And boy, that's what I was listening to mostly this week. <laughs> I never do themed music. I can't pull it off. <laughs> what were you listening to? <laughs> well, I do have that album as well. And that is a good one. That I've not actually listened to it. Well, probably since 2012 or 2013, actually, is probably the last time <laughs> I was listening to that. But I did not realize that it was Christoph Beck's brother. Christoph Beck, I listen to all the time. I am constantly listening to the Buffy music. Uh, but I actually, but but of course I do put on theme music, which is why I always ask these questions because I had a sense, I think my first impulse was really to go listen to like Liszt or something, you know, something actually Hungarian, which I did start off with, but just didn't get me in the right mood. And so I wound up listening to the score to the horror film Midsummer, which was written by, uh, by Bobby Krillick. I've not actually seen the film Midsummer, but my understanding is that it has some similarities to this story, at least in some of its uh, its bare, you know, sort of basic plot elements here of there being like, you know, a cult and uh, something bad happening at Midsummer, And so I wound up putting that on and that really got me in the right mood for this. So I would highly recommend that. Maybe it's a good movie, too. I don't know. It is a good movie. I have seen it. I saw it. I did a crazy double feature with Midsummer and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was a long, long day in the movie theater. But uh now I'm glad I did it because I don't know if movie theaters exist anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a very strange movie. I will say one thing about Midsummer: uh, it really, in some ways, is a response to a trend of horror movies taking place at night. Uh, this takes place in a in a time when there is no night uh, during a midsummer festival in a strange Nordic cult. So it's a horror movie that has to work without shadows. And uh, yeah, it, it really, really works quite well. 
Right. And that, I did know that about the film. And in fact, that was actually something I wanted to say about how I got there, got to going to listen to this music for a film that I have never actually seen, is that I read this story for the first time in Norway uh, when I was on a backpacking trip, not at midsummer. It was uh, late July, which is to say it was still winter uh, while I was there. I mean, there's like literally a snowstorm <laughs> while I was uh, on this backpacking trip. But before I encountered the snowstorm, when there was uh, some, some more pleasant weather, this is the book that I was carrying with me and was reading before bed. But on that trip, I never saw nighttime. It was just, it was not literally always light. It's just that I was asleep for the two hours of actual darkness. And so that just felt right to me. It, uh, it, it felt, you know, this story always for me uh, invokes this feeling of sitting out utterly alone in this part of the world, thousands of miles away from where I was born and grew up and where my, my actual residence was, not having seen another human being in 36 hours or so, not sure if I was ever going to see another human being and reading the reading this volume, the horror stories of Robert E. Howard. And so the soundtrack just felt felt right to me there. Wow, that sounds wonderful. I, I did think about revisiting that soundtrack just because this story took place, takes place on Midsummer Night. Uh, but I, I, I had it up. I did type it into uh, YouTube to listen to the to the soundtrack. But uh, I just couldn't get enough of, of Chili Gonzalez this week. <laughs> All right. Well, we are uh, we're dangerously close to just talking about music for the sake of talking about music. <laughs> and we have already run over like double length here. So uh, so I think let's call it quits. Uh, that's uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to continue to support the network. Uh, and if you do so, if you haven't already, please consider doing it. You can get access to dozens of bonus episodes. So head over to Patreon to check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. If you want to support us, please go ahead and make that move. It, it would just It would just help us out so much. And another way you can support us, if you can't financially, is to review us, tell people you know about us, share our work with people you love, uh, get the word out, help us grow the network. We are, you know, still trying to do that. <laughs> yeah, we are always trying to do that. And we, we talked, you know, a little bit about Cthulhu in this episode, but actually have still not covered the Call of Cthulhu, which is something we are going to do when we get to uh, 100 reviews on uh, on Apple Podcasts or, you know, iTunes. And so if you've not written a, a review there, we would really like for you to do that. We were actually, you know, I think fairly close to, to hitting that number and then doing an extra bonus series on the Call of Cthulhu, which uh, would be fun to do. It's a great story. I would love to love to have the opportunity to do it. As I said at the top of the show as well, this story was uh, purchased as a, a nomination by one of you, one of our listeners, and that is a, a service we are now offering. And since we announced that at the end of last year, we have actually made a number of sales and we're really at a point now where Every episode that we do on the show is going to be a, a nomination from someone who has purchased one or a Patreon supporter who's gotten one as uh, a benefit there or the commissions that we sell and, and give out as Patreon benefits as well. And if, and if you would like to do that, you can join us on Patreon at one of those levels or you can uh, write to us about purchasing one. And while you are on the internet doing that sort of thing, we also, of course, hope that you will come over to the Clay Temple forums or stop by our subreddit and let us know what you thought of this story. We had a lot to say about it. I actually feel like we left a ton on the table as well. So tons to talk about with this story, and we would love to do that with you. Next time, we are going to be back with the first of two episodes on the novella The Furies by Roger Zelazny. I am very excited to get back to Zelazny as well. 
But until then, we greet you and say farewell.